This is the current federal tax developments for the week of October the 10th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this we're going to look at a few key developments that have taken place in the area of federal taxes. First thing we're going to look at here is that the AICPA has written yet another letter on issues with the pass-through entity tax taxes and how they apply to federal law for all those states now. we got a whole bunch that now have a pass-through entity tax. We have some issues that still need to be dealt with. Also, big announcement late this week, the IRS released a revenue procedure that provides effectively that taxpayers are going to be given a break from having to worry about complying with, actually it's a notice, I should say, complying with the required minimum distribution rules that were found in the proposed regulations coming out due to Secure Act changes as they related to inherited IRAs that were in pay status. It should be inherited IRAs plus inherited retirement accounts because this will deal with both of those issues. We also have a major piece, a major document that appears to have taken the IRS quite a while to finalize given the uh, fact it's Revenue Procedure 2022-19, which is an interesting number because that number, you know, we've been much further than that in our procedures. So presumably this particular guidance got delayed a while as the IRS went to uh, make some changes, finalize, negotiate, whatever. We're going to talk about some relief for S-corporation elections and specifically situations where you will not need to necessarily go get a private letter ruling to assure that you still have a valid S-corporation. We'll talk a little bit about why this came about. The idea is, honestly, the IRS wanted to get out of releasing the huge number of private letter rulings they release constantly in this area. So this is their way out of it, shall we say. And finally, we'll talk briefly about an AICPA tax section fact sheet that related to the employee retention tax credit. And especially uh, the AICPA has been very involved in concerns about the heavily marketed uh, ERTC studies, is usually the term they'll use, uh, being pushed on radio, television, anywhere else people can watch that seem to imply that every small business in America can get a In this case, a $26,000 credit per employee. We'll discuss a little bit about what the AICPA told us, as well as, you know, what's in that document on the issues. But let's start first with the AICPA and comments made to the IRS on the pass-through entity taxes. And this is an AICPA Tax Executive Committee comment letter. And it was in regard to additional guidance needed on Section 461 accrual basis taxpayers and those 2020-75 forthcoming regulations regarding the deductibility of payments by partnerships and S corporations for certain state and local taxes. It was issued on October the 4th. As you may be aware, we now have many states, I think we're now at 33 states, have a form of the pass-through entity tax that has been passed. And in all but one of the states, this is elective, and it's a methodology which the IRS in notice 2020-75 effectively said, yeah, it works around the $10,000 limitation on deducting state and local taxes on individual returns by moving the taxes onto the pass-through entity, which will move them onto Schedule E. 
which is above the line and not part of Schedule A and therefore not subject to the limitations. Now, of course, all of that's really in the code uh, where we find the distinctions. And technically, that's they're not subject to Section 164b5 is the actual rule here. But in any event, we're going to talk about those rules. Now, there are some real issues that have arisen based on those rules. And the AICPA has some comments, which they've had comments before, but they've done more. Now, one of the key issues the AICPA is looking at here is asking for guidance that would allow taxpayers to claim a deduction for state and local taxes at the pass-through level based upon the entity's method of accounting. Notice 2075 states, literally, that you get a deduction if you've made that election to pay the pass-through entity tax at the state level. You get to claim the deduction in the year the tax is paid. It did not say paid or incurred, which is the term you would expect to be there if we were going to be able to take them on the accrual basis for an accrual basis pass-through. As you should be aware, partnerships and S-corporations adopt their own method of accounting. So even if the individual shareholder or individual partner is on the cash basis, the partnership or S-corp could very well be on the accrual basis. In fact, might have to be on the accrual basis, depending upon the size, type of operation, what it did, etc. Well, the AICPA would like to have some clarification uh, about the fact that this particular little issue you know, you can accrue the tax because it's been a concern. Uh, in reality, what everybody's been doing, for the most part, those I've talked with, has been ever since that came out in 2020, uh, people had gone ahead and just paid up the tax that they expected to be the total by the end of the year on the theory that, you know, we're going to follow the notice literally because that's all we've got. And while the IRS promised to issue proposed regulations real soon now, uh, this proposed reg came out, or should I say proposed reg, the notice came out in 2020 in November, early November of 2020. And gang, we're getting ready to do another election. Those things happen early November too. And we still have not seen those proposed regs. Well, you know, the IRS will you know, do what they will, but the AICPA wants some specific guidance here. Now, there are some other issues with the recurring item exception. And what the AICPA is requesting is that the liability for this should be a specifically identified tax. And accordingly, a taxpayer should be able to adopt the recurring item exception method of accounting with respect to the liability. Now, that allows you to pay it later in the year than you would otherwise be able to pay it. You know, economic performance, et cetera, would take place, allowing you to pay it as late as, you know, 15th day of the ninth month of the year. Uh, the problem that we run into, of course, is this is kind of irrelevant if they don't get their first request, which is if accrual basis taxpayers can't accrue this tax and it's all based on paying it by the end of the year. Well, as you'd say, that may or may not be uh, an issue. Right. Also, then the IRS, then we're asking for one th a third thing. Again, this somewhat goes back to the accrual basis problem. One real issue we've got with accrual basis, if you can accrue it, is the fact that in many, if not the vast majority of states, right, the vast majority of states, your election, in fact, cannot be made until you file the pass-through tax return for the year in question. And in some cases, even if you file it, 
you still can undo the election all the way through the due date for that return. So conceivably, you might not elect, since they would allow you to do an extended return, to pay the, to, you know, pay the pass or entity tax or actually make the call of whether you're going to do it or not until September 15th. Even if you know you're going to do it, the reality is you can't actually take the step that would require you to pay the tax until the return is due. Now, there are some states like New York that do require an early election, so this wouldn't be a problem in those states. But in other states, now, you know, the SBA would want to have this clarified. And what they're going to ask for here is an entity that is unable to make an entity level election until the year subsequent, the taxable year of the imposition, should be allowed to make a federal election to deduct the tax in the taxable year of imposition or the following year. Now, I love how they ask for a choice and they compare it to qualified retirement plans. Actually, there you do treat it as the prior year regardless. But in any event, it is an interesting problem. Now, as I said, this is the first, this is not the first letter the ASCP has sent. And so far, we've not gotten any real guidance from the IRS beyond notice 202075. But basically, if you haven't thought about these issues, there are definitely issues to think about whether we'll get answers to them in time to do anything about it for 22 returns. That's probably not likely, but you know, we can always hope. So we'll go for the best. Next up, something that came as a bit of a surprise on Friday. Uh, this is IRS Notice 2022-53. And in the notice, the IRS has announced that the agency will not impose penalties on failures to take specified requirement, required minimum distributions. And notice this de defines what a specified RMD is. Uh, for 2021 and 2022, that required under provisions of the proposed regulations that were issued to deal with the changes in required minimum distributions under the SECURE Act that was passed late in 2019. Now, this impacts retirement accounts, IRAs, and potentially uh, defined, benef defined contribution accounts that were in pay status when the original employee or beneficiary, the owner of the IRA account, died and passes to a you know, someone who inherits that account, not a surviving spouse who decides to treat it as his or her own account, but passes as an inherited IRA or an inherited plan balance. Now, under the proposed regulations, so let's talk for a second about this issue. The SECURE Act, remember, got rid of the stretch concept to a large extent and basically said within 10 years after a person dies, and the defined contribution account or IRA account passes to a, you know, their heir, that that party has 10 years to get the funds out of the account. And th this took the place of the five-year test. Under the previous law, the five-year rule that said you had five years to get the money out only applied to accounts that were not yet in pay status. If the account was not yet in pay status, you had five years, but you could opt to use a life expectancy. If the account was in pay status, then generally it came out over the life expectancy of the oldest beneficiary, assuming that every party there had a life expectancy. That is, there were no charities or 
uh, entities or trusts or any of those things, at least trusts that aren't qualified as conduit trusts, that were beneficiaries as of September 30 of the year following the year of the death of the holder of the account. A lot of people reading the SECURE Act late in 2019, and in fact, you know, and when interpreting it in early 2020 and on through into last year, through the end of last year, had interpreted the law change to be that we just got rid of the life expectancy rule, period, unless you were an eligible designated beneficiary who could use life expectancy. And the 10-year rule, which works just like the five, which would say essentially that you could, and before the day the owner of the account gets into pay mode, you know, if the owner dies at age 58, then you as the person inheriting the account under the old law could have waited five years and then taken the whole balance out at the end of the fifth year following the year that the owner of the account died. And that works that way for the 10-year rule, but people had assumed it still worked that way even if the person had passed away because we know, you know, the person had been in pay status when they passed away because we knew according to the law that we were getting rid of the stretch concept. Well, the problem is, as the IRS put out, point out in the proposed regs, they didn't really repeal the requirement that if the person's in pay status, you have to continue distributing, quote unquote, at least as rapidly. And what the IRS took that to mean was that you had to use the old rules for years one through nine following the death of the holder of the account if that account was in pay status. So you couldn't just set on the account until the end of the 10th year and take out the balance if the person had already attained age 72, is now our magic age, at the date that you inherited, you know, at the date they died, so the date the IRA passes to the beneficiaries. So they'd already been in pay status before they died. So we got to April 1st of the year following the year they turned age 72. In that scenario, you have to take the distributions for nine years. Now, a real problem with those regs is they were told that they were going to apply to 2021 distributions, which was interesting because they didn't issue these regs until late February of 2022. By that point in time, if you hadn't taken that distribution and given, I don't recall reading many, if any, commentators thinking that you had to take a distribution in 21 in that scenario, I suspect that the vast majority of people who inherited an IRA in 2020 and who didn't just cash the whole thing out because take the money and run, which is always a popular mode for most uh, beneficiaries of IRAs, but assuming they didn't take the money and run, they probably took nothing in that first year. And may very well, even if they did take a little something, they might not have taken enough to be that payout that should have been made. So the IRS got a lot of comments that indicated, A, that, you know, people had read that as this 10-year rule substituted for life expectancy entirely. And B, because of that, because the IRS didn't say a word until February of 2022, Obviously, a lot of people did not take distributions in 21. 
And, you know, the regs said, well, and all the regs told us was that, of course, you know, they were proposed regs. So in theory, we didn't have to follow them. But you had to follow a reasonable interpretation of the law. And the regs were the only safe harbor reasonable interpretation we had. Right. Well, we didn't really have any by the end of 21. But then now suddenly we have this one. And now the problem is people got worried that they might have to justify you know, why they didn't take one back in 21. In some cases, that caused people to actually take that distribution in early 22 and send in the document asking for waiver of the excise tax. Remember, the excise tax on failing to take the required distribution is 50% of the required distribution, so it's not a small excise tax. Uh, and some people just may have already taken their 22 distributions. Well, turns out that maybe you moved a little too fast. What the IRS announced here is first that final regulations regarding required minimum distributions under section 401A9 of the code and related provisions will apply no earlier than the 2023 distribution calendar year. So those regulations proposed in February of this year will not apply before the distributions for next year. And notice, they didn't even commit to saying it'll apply next year. You know, don't jump, you know, I've heard a few people kind of jump, you know, jump a little far here and say literally, you know, yeah, we, we have to take them in 23. They didn't really commit to saying they're going to adopt the regs with no changes. Now, while I think that's still very likely they will do so, and they may do so before the end of this year, as we stand right now, we do not have a requirement for 23 yet. We've just been told we might have one for 23. So hold where you are. Now, what they also announced was that they were going to provide relief if anybody didn't take their distribution in 21 or 22. As they say, they're both going to provide relief to qualified retirement plans. There, the notice says a defined contribution plan that failed to make the specified requirement distribution will not be treated as having failed to satisfy 401A9 merely because it did not make that distribution. Now, that is, in the worst case, a potential qualification issue for the plan, so it's nice. So retirement plans did not have to make that distribution. The bad news is we waited until October to tell everybody this, and we don't know if plans have already taken, you know, started in motion programs to make this payment that may not be easy to reverse. As well for individuals who failed to take that specified RMD, those are the ones be subject to the 50% excise tax. The notice provides to the extent a taxpayer did not take a specified RMD, the IRS will not assert that an excise tax is due under 4974. If the taxpayer has already paid an excise tax for a missed RMD in 2021, that constitutes a specified RMD, that taxpayer may request a refund of that tax. So if you're that one person who didn't ask for the waiver, which I've never seen turned down, and rather just paid the excise tax, you can file a claim for refund. Note, the IRS is not saying they're going to be able to identify that you're in that class. So if somebody did, they're going to have to do it. Now, a specified RMD, for these purposes, those things that will not be penalized, and you don't have to worry about for 2021 and 2022, is any distribution that under the interpretation, including proposed regulations, 
would be required to be made pursuant to Section 41A9 in 2021 or 2022 under a defined contribution plan or IRA that is subject to the rules of 401A9H, that's at least as rapid payout, right? For the year in which the, for the, year in which the employee died, right? If that payment would be required to be made to a designated beneficiary of an employee plan under the plan, if the employee or IRA owner died in 2020 or 21, and on or before the employee's or IRA owner's required beginning date, and on or after, I should say, and designated beneficiary is not taking lifetime or life expectancy payments uh, pursuant to the, you know, basically the beneficiaries that are eligible beneficiaries who could do that. And also, right, the same thing would be included, uh, you know, for an eligible designated beneficiary uh, pursuant to 401b5 of the SECURE Act, if designated beneficiary died in 2021, again, they're taking those lifetime payouts. So again, we have that relief in play this year. So if your clients, and many people have been getting very nervous, you know, and want to, uh, you know, start taking those payments, you can back them off the ledge now. You can tell them that the, you know, if they're in that position, it won't be required. Now, be very careful here. Remember, this doesn't excuse people who, you know, if somebody died, if the IRA account holder died in 20, let's say in, you know, 2019, 18, 16. No, those distributions not affected. They were still supposed to take the distributions. It has to be somebody who would have been under the SECURE Act rules, which would which would mean a death in 2020 or 21. Well, 22 as well. But again, remember, uh, if they die in 22, you have to take the decedent's required distribution for this year, but we don't have to take the distribution for the beneficiary. So, you know, that's fine. But we do have that issue. Keep your eye on this to see if the IRS takes the regs final, what they say and when they do. We would hope they would take the regs final uh, sometime, at least tell us earlier in 2023 if we're going to need to do this or not. But this is where we stand right now. So major development. And it was done like on Friday afternoon. Another thing that popped up rather late in fact, technically, I believe it's being published on Monday, is Revenue Procedure 2022-19. And this is issued, it's going to be published on the 11th of October. That's technically Monday, right? It's going to be, I believe, an Internal Revenue Bulletin on that day. Now, as I said, it's interesting because this Revenue Procedure has a lower number than other procedures we've seen. So, it's kind of interesting that it came out. It would appear that it might have been one that was being negotiated, shall we say, currently. You know, we were negotiating out the deal to figure out what's going to happen here. But this is meant to deal with S corporations that have, well, we're not sure if they have a valid S election, either because they botched it initially or something has happened in the interim that we believe might have killed the S election. And the idea here is if you read private letter rulings regularly, and we've, we've discussed some of these over the years here because they are kind of interesting for how you can botch an S, you will know that the IRS spends a lot of time issuing every year a whole ton of private letter rulings indicating that they will retroactively waive 
the fact that the S election was inadvertently terminated and allowed this entity to continue to be treated as an S corporation if certain conditions are met. Well, now we're going to have the IRS is saying, look, we're kind of done with this. We don't really want to deal with this anymore. So what we're going to do is for six categories, we are going to define ways that you essentially can have the problem solved. Or maybe not solved, but at least put it this way. We're going to say that under the law, we're going to grant you this as long as you meet certain conditions. And we're not going to issue a PLR on this any longer, private letter ruling, because, you know, it takes too much time. We don't want to do it. I know we get fees for it, but we don't care. We don't want to keep doing these. We want to get out of these. Now, I had been told by some people that do due diligence in S-corporation structures uh, a number of years ago, the IRS was thinking of releasing just such a procedure, that they were trying to get a self-certification program in place. Because when these tend to happen, let, let's be honest about when they tend to happen, they tend to happen as part of a due diligence review done by a potential buyer of you know, the business. And so a buyer comes in, public company, and they, they start looking to make sure there's no skeletons in the closet. They're, they're not, you know, buying into a bunch of problems. And one of the things they tend to look at here, if the entity is an S corporation, is they bring in specialists uh, who may come from a national or international accounting firm to do this due diligence, who are going to look to see if there are tax problems. And one of the tax problems is, do we have a valid S election? Is there a problem with our S status? And quite often, they discover potential problems. Now, I say potential because somebody's going to say right away, wait, I have been doing this for 35, 40, whatever years, and I have never had the IRS come in. Even when they examine an S corporation, I've never had them come in and look at these details and tell me we didn't have an S anymore. Right. They never notice any of this stuff. None of this comes up. So it's not real world. Yes, that seems true until the due diligence team arrives. Public companies do not like to take over problems or even potential problems. And unlike many of us, you know, well, CPAs, unfortunately, seem to love to try to step in and take ownership of a problem they had nothing to do with. Uh, that doesn't really make you a hero. That makes you a chump. But okay, understand that. You know, to solve a problem, I mean, I don't mind helping somebody deal with the problem, but to take ownership of the problem, which is what you end up doing when you ignore it and you say, oh, don't worry about it, it'll never be raised, it's no issue. If it becomes a problem down the line, you just took ownership of the problem and you're not going to be liable for the consequences, which in these cases is tended to be paying for a private letter ruling, which includes not only the fee to the IRS, but also because obviously you fouled this up, so we're not going to let the CPA or attorney that worked on this initially uh, handle this. We'll go ahead and we'll have the specialist from the National Office of the International Accounting Firm take care of this PLR request, and they'll bill nicely hourly, and the bill will be presented to the whoever was involved, the CPA, attorney, EAs, involved in the uh, accounting for this thing over the years. So yeah, that's how it goes. So let's talk about those things that have been cleared. And there are six categories. The first one is which agreements and arrangements with no principal purpose to circumvent the one class of stock arrangement. 
And what they're talking about here is they, they describe the basic one class of stock rule. And when they discuss this, we have to kind of look at this. And they actually describe more in the first part of the procedure. And one part of it will come up at the very end in number six and the other parts now. But there really are two places you could have a problem with the one class of stock rule. The one class of stock rule under 1361 and regulation 1.1361-1L1, which is where you find the actual definition, says essentially a corporation for federal tax purposes is treated as having one class of stock if all outstanding shares offer confer identical rights to distribution and to liquidation proceeds. Now, what's really important there is the word rights. There are two ways you can foul this up. The first way is, which is not covered by this first waiver, is your governing document. So we would take a look at, you know, your articles of incorporation, your bylaws, etc., to see for rights of the various interest holders. If you have, let's say, voting and non-voting stock, voting and non-voting doesn't cause you a problem because the federal law rule doesn't look at that as defining a, you know, class of stock. You know, so so essentially you know, don't violate the one class of stock rule, even though for state law purposes, those are two classes of stock, you know, for state corporate law. However, what we do worry about is rights. And the way we've seen this go south in those documents has been where somebody grabs the uh, boilerplate corporate agreement and they say, oh, we want to have non-voting stock too, because I read we can do that with an S-corp, which we can. So they, they just grab a boilerplate corporate structure that has, you know, two classes of stock, voting and non-voting, but they fail to notice that the board is given the power to separately declare dividends for each category. Well, gang, you have two classes of stock now because it doesn't matter if you never pay the differing dividends. What matters is the fact that the right exists and rights the problem. So rights are what matter here. As we'll discover later, actually paying differing, you know, basically paying dividends that aren't the same, that doesn't really cause us a problem. But what does cause a problem, you know, if in fact the law says they need to be the same, because the problem is if the law says they can in any situation be different. The other way we run into a problem on this is when we have a limited liability company that attempts to be operated as an S corporation. So we have a single member LLC. It makes an S election. That's no problem because obviously there's only one owner. That owner has the same rights, right? He gets everything. He or she gets everything in liquidation and every distribution. So that's easy. But if they take on a second member, now suddenly we may have a problem because if you're using an LLC operating agreement based on the partnership uh, assumption, it's going to be taxed as a partnership. It has the 704B language in there Almost certainly that makes it not an S corporation any longer because that sets up situations where the rights could differ for distributions and ultimate liquidation. And we can't have that. So that's a problem. But the other way you can do it is have other arrangements, other agreements and arrangements. And the IRS notes that the regulations identify other agreements and arrangements between or among an S corporation's shareholders that may or may not be treated as a second class of stock, depending on part whether a principal purpose arrangement or arrangements was to circumvent the one class of stock. And things that could be used that way would be buy sell agreements among the shareholders, agreements restricting transferability, and redemption agreements. Right? 
uh, various other things could be involved. Now, this one deals with that because what happens is, you know, the person, the party comes in, they get concerned about that. And now they want to have some, you know, we see this by sell agreement. Well, does it really qualify or not? And so they end up wanting a private letter ruling. The IRS is going to get rid of that issue. What the IRS now says is agreements and arrangements that are described in the regulations mentioned in that description, you can see it right up where it's there, uh, are not governing provisions and are not treated as second class of stocks as long as there is no principal purpose. Principal purpose means the major overriding purpose to use the agreement as a means to circumvent the one class of stock rule. Accordingly, the IRS will not treat an S corporation as violating one class of stock requirement as a result of an agreement arrangement identified in the regulations that does not have a principal purpose to circumvent the one class of stock requirement. Uh, because entering into these arrangements will not result in termination of status, the taxpayers do not need to seek relief from the IRS. And in fact, the IRS will tell us later, specifically, that if you try to ask them for a letter ruling in this area, they're not going to give you one. Because they're going to say, they're not going to give you a letter ruling that something is a principal purpose, uh, because that's a factual determination. We don't issue PLRs on factual determinations. Okay. Now, the second problem comes if you have governing provisions that provide for identical distribution and liquidation rights, but in reality, the taxpayers end up distributing, you know, they distribute excess amounts to one party and not another. And what they say here is for this disproportionate distribution, even though the governing document, right, is in play, um, what they're going to say is the, you know, the revenue procedure provides corporations not to have more than one class of stock as long as the governing provisions provide for identical distributions and liquidation rights. Accordingly, the IRS will not treat any disproportionate distributions made by a corporation as violating the one class of stock provision so long as the governing provision of the corporation provide for identical distributions and liquidation rights. And because disproportionate distributions made in these circumstances will not result in termination of the S-Corp status, the I, we do not need to seek relief from the IRS in this area. And bingo, as I told you, IRS not ruling on this area. Now, the third category they're going to deal with here today is what happens if you had missing shareholder consents, errors with regard to permitted year, missing officer signatures, or other inadvertent errors and omissions when you filed your form 2553 or 8869. Now, these inadvertent errors, you know, could invalidate, you know, the 2553 is not correct. So the IRS is going to break this down. And what they're going to do is start talking about some various areas here that could have that what's missing and what you could do. Some of them could still require a PLR. If you have, if you didn't get the shareholder's consent, all shareholder's consent, right? The IRS first says, you know, check regulation 1.1362-6 to see if you could still request an extension of time for filing a shareholder consent to an S election. You can do that. If you still qualify under that, you still have time to do it. That'd be a possibility. Also take a look at revenue procedure 2013-30 which is a simplified method for taxpayers uh, to request relief for late S elections, or Revenue Procedure 2435, which is automatic relief for certain taxpayers requesting relief for late shareholder consents for S elections in community property states, because 
By the way, for those of you not in a community property state, if you have a shoulder in a community property state and the stock sells community property, which it probably is, because it's difficult to get stuff out of that category uh, without really, really trying and being really, really careful, then you've got to have both spouses' signatures. Well, there's a rev proc for that. If you qualify for, if you can get, if you can fix it using one of those three, then you have to use those methods. However, if you cannot use those methods, then and only then you can submit a request for a private letter ruling to the IRS, pay the fee, etc. Next, what happens if you made a mistake with regard to permitted year? So let's say a form 2553 that contains an inadvertent error with regard to permitted year may be corrected under Revenue Proc 201330. Um, that's that simplified method to request relief for late S elections. You can make that election. You can make the late election to fix the problem. Uh, the IRS is saying if you don't qualify for the late election relief, uh, then yes, you could do the private lettering. You have three years and 75 days effectively to get from the date that you wanted to be S to get that document filed. So they're saying essentially fix it in that time frame. We're happy. We don't need a PLR. If you're missing the officer signature, again, they say that's either officer signature uh, for, you know, that affects validity of an S election or a Q sub election can be corrected pursuant to Revenue Procedure 201330, simplified method to request relief for late S elections and Q sub elections. And again, only if you're not eligible there. So remember, they're saying if in fact the election is ineligible, if in fact you failed one of these things because you didn't do the 2553 correctly, as long as you're within the time period to file the late election under 201330, uh, don't go for a PLR. Right. Now, finally, aside from those three errors, now this is where the IRS makes a much broader area. I think those three errors, because the late election rulings could fix them, uh, and because of, you know, they, they don't want to encourage people to just say, oh, we don't have to worry about anything. We can just skip all this stuff. They're going to go ahead and enforce those. But for other, uh, for other errors, for other inadvertent errors or omissions, Right. Uh, you correct those by explaining and writing the errors or omissions and necessary corrections and submitting the written explanation to the address where the S corporation files its form 1120S or any successor address the IRS may provide. That means you'll either file it in Kansas City or you'll file it with Ogden, Utah currently. And that will get you out. And as noted, except where they told you you could ask for a PLR in this area. IRS is not issuing PLRs in this area. So don't ask for them. You won't get them, right? They're not going to come out. Next up, and this is a problem I know people run into more than once. Uh, what happens if the taxpayer can't find, right, their acknowledgement from the IRS that, you know, they were accepted as an S corporation, the Q sub election was accepted. So, you know, they've, they've got this late notice. You know, they can't prove they're an S corporation. And now everybody's freaking out. And so every so often that, that would send people to go get a PLR from time to time to prove you're an S. Well, the IRS says, no, we're going to put in procedures to allow you to get a replacement letter. And so with regard to those missing administrative acceptance letters for the S election or accepting a Q sub election, the letter may be requested for an S corporation shareholders of the S corporation by contacting the IRS business and tax specialty 
the business and specialty tax line at 800-829-4933, or for tax practitioners, contact Practitioner Practitioner Priority Service at 866-860-4259. And again, we're not going to give you a PLR saying you're an S-corporation just because you can't find your letter. Call the number given, get your copy there. That's your method for getting a, a copy if you lost your copy. So that's how we're going to handle that. Next up, what happens if the federal income tax return didn't file an S-corporation return? For instance, they filed a Form 1065 or a Form 1120 instead of the 1120S. You know, nothing that says, although an inconsistent federal income tax return filing can create several complications for the filer, that's an understatement. You're going to get notices all over the place. Nothing in the code or regulations thereunder provides such a filing affects the validity of the corporation's S or Q sub-election. As such, you still got a valid election, right? You didn't lose your election because you filed the S election, and then the first two returns you filed were an 1120, 71120S. Or you filed your S election, but then you did a 1065. You still have an S corporation. By the way, I've seen some people try to somehow work out of their S filings they did by just saying, oh, we'll just file a 1065 and pretend it never went in. It's like, well, that may get you in more trouble. But the procedure to fix this to make sure you're going to save your S is you're to file a corrected original return or amended return, right? You file a fair income tax return for tax years inconsistent with the status of corporation as an S corporation or inconsistent with the, of the parent S corporation or Q-sub must file a fair income tax return for open taxable years consistent with its status as appropriate to reflect the status of the corporation as an S corporation or parent of a Q-sub or reflect the status of the subsidiary as a Q-sub. The procedure provides guidance as the federal income tax effect. Because the corporation is not treated as having terminated its S election or Q-sub election as appropriate, merely due to filing one or more inappropriate federal income tax returns, the corporation's distributions and other transactions will be treated consistent with the status of an S corporation or a Q-sub as appropriate. Thus, a Q-sub's income or deductions will be treated as income or deductions of the parent S corporation, and distributions between the Q-sub and its parents will be disregarded. As with the prior issues, no PLRs, guys. We're not getting any in this case, so don't ask for them on this issue. Finally, there's a much more complicated set of rules for retroactively correcting one or more non-identical governing provisions. Remember I said where it turns out that your operating agreement appear your you know your operating agreement for the LLC or the uh, you know articles incorporation create equity interests that have differing rights or could have even though we never use them in this case it becomes a much more complicated set of rules I won't go through them in detail here this is where you break out the notice and start finding when you're going to do that if you qualify for this you can get retroactive uh, fixes. Uh, if you don't, you can still go for a private letter ruling. But most people should qualify for the retroactive fix if in reality, you know, nothing bad ever happened. Nothing happened that was inconsistent. We just have bad documents. And so you can send that through and get that done. They tell you how to do it. There are statements to attach. They actually have example statements at the end of the ruling that you can attach to the returns in question to get this relief. So again, if you have that situation where you're reviewing the operating agreement or you're reviewing the, uh, you know, the Articles of Corporation and you discover that, oh man, there are two classes of stock outstanding, um, you know, in this case, 
Uh, and I don't care that we've never made distributions that aren't equal. It doesn't matter. That's not the key. It's rights here that are involved. So for that reason, you'd want to go and follow this. Now, there are some special rules if you have a request in play now, uh, whether you can for these, especially for these inconsistent agreements, you can either decide to carry that forward or not. But as we said, don't be surprised if, you get, if you're looking for ones that aren't covered by the option, or if you send one in now, you know, send one in next week, uh, that the IRS just returns that to you. Because remember, the key issue is the IRS will not now issue private letter rulings in areas where this offers automatic relief. Uh, that's probably going to be a sad thing, I suppose, for some of the people that, that do the due diligence, because that means they're not going to be able to go get paid for doing private letter ruling requests left and right at this point. You know, But the other problem I'm sure some people are going to have is, like when we talk about those other devices, other documents, other contracts, there will be no way to get the IRS to say, yep, that's not a problem. And the IRS is going to say, well, either, you know, if in fact the principal purpose wasn't to avoid the one class of stock rule, then, hey, guys, you know, there, there's not, you know, the, you didn't lose your election, so there's nothing for us to rule on. And if it is a mechanism for that purpose, then, guys, sorry, that's a factual termination, but you're not going to get relief. But we're not going to make a factual call on a PLR. I do believe the IRS was concerned that in some cases they were effectively here being asked to make factual determinations. So they're backing out of that with this revenue procedure. So be aware of that. It is here something today. Uh, it was issued on the 11th of 2022. If you look at the slide, it says 19. You know, well, going back in time, pre-COVID. Whatever, but no, it is this case. 10, 11 of 22 is when this comes out. Finally, the AICPA, uh, if you haven't been following, the AICPA's tax division especially, has been very concerned with uh, some of the marketing being done by certain mills who are attempting to, you know, get everybody to file an employee retention tax credit claim. And as those of us, you know, we've talked about that on this program in the past, about the employee retention tax credit, when it qualifies for the no living relative rule and various other structures. Well, the AICPA has issued, which I believe is a four page document uh, that's available to tax section members or those that attended the AICPA town hall, uh, which I think which was last week. So if you attend that, you're kind of stuck there. Otherwise, tax division, but tax division members can download it. Why it's interesting is because it, it is a document issued with the AICPA name on it that specifically addresses certain key issues that people are going to be hitting if your clients are getting heavy, heavy marketing from employee retention credit shops uh, who are suggesting that your CPA doesn't know anything, your EA doesn't know anything, your attorney doesn't know anything. The uh, I love the lines they're doing now. Oh, there are new developments in this area. Gang, nothing news happened. Nothing news happened in the past year in this area. The only thing that happened was they cut off the program early, right? Remember last year in the tax bill at the end of last year, we cut the program off so it didn't work for the fourth quarter. That's the only thing in the last year that's happened, right? And that didn't suddenly make pe more people eligible, guys. It made less people eligible. Right. So there's nothing that made more people eligible, despite what every one of these shops on the radio ads seem to be saying. Right. That's kind of how it works. 
But a couple of things I want to point out that the ACPA specifically says. The AICPA picks this up and talks about whether or not a statement is fact or fiction. And one they label as fiction is, given COVID-19's wide-reaching effects, many small businesses will qualify for employer retention credit. And they call that out as a false statement. I might say it's more a misleading statement. I mean, obviously, you could say many is kind of a vague term. You know, is three small businesses in the country many? Well, okay, then maybe it is. Uh, and it'll be more than three. But what they do say is determining whether a business is eligible for the ERC can be pretty complex. You either have to meet the gross receipts test, remember the 50% reduction in 2020, or the 20% or more decline in 2021 when compared to 2019 quarters, or experience a fuller partial suspension because of a government order. Whether a business experienced a partial suspension is a facts and circumstances determination and will vary depending upon the location of the business and the government orders. Now, a couple of big things here is they do note that there must have been a fuller partial suspension of operations, all caps, because of a government order that limited commerce, travel, or group meetings due to COVID-19. That order would need to have more than a nominal effect on the business to qualify for the ERC, and that's key in there. Now, they also have a discussion here about, you know, also the difficulties of doing full and partial suspensions, right? And some things they label as Fiction is a statement, all safety recommendations or guidelines a government agency issues should be considered government orders to suspend operations. No. If, the, if you're just merely advised, like let's say right now that you're in an area of high transmission and based on CDC guidance, it's advised that people indoors, you know, wear masks or do whatever or, you know, stay outdoors or whatever. If it's recommended but not required, then it doesn't count. You know, if the governor recommends that people not dine indoors and that restaurants not have indoor dining but doesn't prohibit it, it doesn't count. Recommendations don't do it. As well, they come out very straight and say this, no federal order during 2020 or 2021 had to be during there to qualify because those are the only periods you could qualify during would qualify a business for the ERC. It has to be a state or local order that you need to identify, including beginning date, ending date, nature of the restriction, and why it had more than a nominal effect on your business. Those are all things you got to carry. They also lay fiction, my business experienced supply chain disruption, which means it qualifies for the ERC. Merely experiencing a supply chain disruption, even if it was somehow related to the pandemic in some form, right? wouldn't be sufficient to qualify unless all of the following criteria are met. Your supplier cannot make deliveries of critical goods due to a qualifying government order, which again, based on the previous discussion, would have to be a state or local order that you can identify, point out, show it to me, and show me the beginning and ending dates. You also have to show, though, if you're going to rely on your supplier, that you could not get those critical goods from any alternative supplier. Not just that you didn't want to because you're good buddies with this guy, but because you absolutely couldn't. There was no way to replace those. This is the only person that makes this particular uh, part, this particular item that you need. That's what has to be there. And you must experience a more than nominal effect from the issue. Again, it's got to be something. The fact that I couldn't get, let's say, whatever that supply might be, for this, you know, I, I couldn't get a certain color of paper that I like to use for handouts in my CPE courses. 
you know, I couldn't, oh man, I can't get that, you know, mustard colored paper. Oh, that, that's such a, so I, I had to stop using those handouts. And that, that was a more than not, no, it's not a more than nominal effect. First thing is alternative supplies were available with other colors, presumably even mustard probably I could get. And I know I don't use mustard handouts. And then number two, would it really have more than a nominal effect if I, if I just can't hand out the mustard colored things? Probably not. So there we go. My business qualifies for the ERC because employees and clients had to wear masks. No. Generally does not qualify for full or partial suspension. You've got to show why those people wearing masks had more than a nominal effect on your business. If you're an accounting firm, right, then you're probably going to have a little trouble showing that that had more than a nominal effect on your business, requiring your staff to wear masks or requiring those that visited the office to wear masks. You're going to have trouble showing that, you know. Now, if you're a, let's say your specialty was dealing with individuals who have, you know, various uh, hearing issues and therefore, you know, and, you know, your clientele overall lip read heavily uh, and your staff's not allowed to you know, have to wear the mask, that's what they were required to do, let's say, in the operations, then yes, you might have a prop, you might have a position there. Uh, but again, then I think you might have an ADA issue too that got into discussions. Uh, literally got, got shipped a, uh, for purposes for using a lecture, which I never had, I never used, uh, but actually had a mask that, that had a, that had basically plastic in the center front so that they could see your lips move if need be. And my business within the location where there was a stay-at-home order and I adjusted operations based on this. This automatically means I claim the ERC. Also false. Any voluntary action a business takes is not gonna not gonna deal with this. And if you were allowed to stay open, but you know, but your customers, because of fear of COVID, you know, concerns, etc., just didn't come, well, that impact should show up on the revenue test. And if it doesn't show up on the revenue test, it's not gonna work for this purpose as well. So you know, that's not going to do it. The fact that people might not have wanted to buy from you if they couldn't come inside, even though you were allowed to ship and sell remotely, you know, clients wouldn't come in and do their tax work because they didn't want to, you know, send you the tax stuff or drop it off. They had to sit there with you and watch you do everything. Uh, probably not going to qualify for it. Not going to make it work. So, you know, but the loss of revenue from those clients, that could make it work. And that's where things go. Well, this has been the current federal tax developments for this, the last week before the ultimate due date on October 17th. You got one week to get that done. Current federal tax developments is brought to you as always this week by Capital Financial Education. Uh, I'm Ed Zollers, and I always come from Phoenix here when doing this, at least normally do. And, you know, I do check in on the listservs and uh, the connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, uh, Illinois and Washington, as well as take a look at what's posted on Idaho. You can also email me at zollersacurrentfulltaxdevelopments.com if you have any questions or comments. Otherwise, uh, I hope you have a, I hope you survived this last week, which is usually what we try to do this last week of these, of the absolute drop dead date for tax season. And, uh, you know, ne next week, hopefully, uh, well, I guess Monday, the day I have this come out next week is the day. So by Tuesday, when you're probably going to be listening to it, or maybe when I even get it out, because who knows if I get it taped on time for the 17th, um, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll be able to then uh, be done. You'll be getting the tax planning mode and I'll be getting into CPE mode. 
So take care. We'll see you next week for more current federal tax developments.